We're talking about Bible hunger this morning. You probably have heard of the organization called Voice of the Martyrs. They talk about those who have been persecuted and ultimately those who have given their lives. Well, there was a story they ran a few years back, a guy by the name of Mosafar. And the story was titled Bible Hunger, and it talked about how Mosafar had eaten the entire Bible. If you're like me, you're wondering, why would you do that? Well, the reason that was the case was Mosafar started out, he persecuted Christians, he wanted to attack Christians, he had great zeal for doing that, was well known for doing that, actually was in prison, put in jail for the attacks that he had done to Christians. When he got out of jail, his leaders were impressed with what he had done, and they decided to give him a special assignment. They gave him a copy of the Bible and told him, your assignment is to go study this and disprove Christianity. Your assignment is to disprove Christianity. So he began to study the Bible intensely. As he studied it, he was moved by the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ, and it bothered him. So he checked himself into a hotel, locked himself away from the outside world, studied cover to cover intensely the Word of God, and as you can imagine, he ended up accepting Christ himself. Well, he comes home. His family immediately notices a difference in him. They admit him into an insane asylum, into a hospital. They give him shock therapy to try to shock Jesus out of him, but it doesn't work. So he comes back home, and in order to have the Bible, he was so hungry, he would take a page, tear it out, a page at a time. He would go into his bathroom, shut the door, and lock it. He would scan the page and memorize as much as he could, and then he would put it in his mouth, chew it up, and swallow it before he would come out of the bathroom in order to not get caught with the Bible. Now, you think about that. We have how many copies of the Bible in our homes? I mean, how many do I have on my shelf in my office alone? How many versions do we have access to on our iPad? Now, we shouldn't have to go in our bathrooms and one page at a time devour the Bible, but we should have the same type of hunger for the Bible that Mosafar does. And so it forces me to ask a question. How hungry am I for the Word of God? Really? I mean, how much do I desire it? How much time have I spent this week with this in my hands? Have I read it? Have I taken it and devoured it? Am I applying it to my daily life? Because the truth is, as we look at continuing this story about the book of Nehemiah, what we find is, is that they discover, again, their need for the Word of God. And the reason this is so very important is because a fresh start begins with the Word of God. Why is that important in the context of Nehemiah? Well, We've been in this series, we've looked at the past several weeks at the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem and how Nehemiah led this effort. And we know that Nehemiah teaches us the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem teaches us how God wants to build our lives, how he wants to build his church, and how he wants to build his kingdom. That's the theme of the book, that's the point of the book. What we've seen so far is that Nehemiah, 400 years before Jesus comes, we've got a guy named Nehemiah who is a cupbearer to the king, a layperson that God calls and gives a burden to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Because years before, Israel had been sent into exile in Babylon, which eventually became Persia, which is what it is the time of Nehemiah. And when Babylon, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, and they destroyed the gates. The temple's been rebuilt, but the walls are still a mess. The walls represent separation and distinction. 
And the gates represent authority and power. So they have no distinction, no separation from the outside world. There's no authority, no, no power in their lives. And so they're a, mock, they're a mockery. They are a, 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 an insult to God. Um, and so Nehemiah, his heart breaks for the condition of the people, but, but what breaks his heart even more is that the glory of God's in reproach. So he goes back to Jerusalem, leads this effort in rebuilding the walls, and sure enough, as we saw last week, in 52 days' time, the walls are rebuilt. 52 days' time, the walls are rebuilt, but there's still work to be done. You look at chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 1 and 2 are about Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem. Chapters 3 through 7 are about rebuilding the walls. That happens in 52 days. So in chapters 3 through 7, this effort takes place. They finish the task. But then what they find out is what happened in the city with the walls now needs to happen in their lives and in their hearts. Their hearts need to be rebuilt. If you look at chapter 7, we're not going to spend time there today, but if you look at chapter 7, it's basically a list of names. So what's the significance there? The significance there is that God knows your name. He knows every detail of your life, and you are important to him. You move into chapter 8, there's a shift that takes place. A revival is needed. Their hearts need to be rebuilt. And that's where we pick up in this story where their hearts are needing to be rebuilt. And that goes back to what we said just a few minutes ago. This is important. The Bible is important in this because a fresh start, they need a fresh start. A fresh start begins in God's word. So back to the question, how hungry am I for the Word of God? I mean, am I really hungry for the Word of God in my life? So we're going to look at chapter 8 and hopefully be able to answer that question this morning. It's the scene of God rebuilding the hearts of the people. And you can follow along with me as I begin in verse 1. We're going to read several verses this morning. All the people, verse 1, chapter 8, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra... This Ezra, of course, is the book before Nehemiah. Ezra's the scribe. He's the teacher of the law. Nehemiah's the governor. Ezra's the teacher. So they bring him in uh, to teach. By the way, Ezra's been there 13 years in the city. So he's been trying to work with these people for a long time now. But now they've got the walls finished. So they ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Bring the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel on the first day of the seventh month. This is their New Year's. Isn't that a great time for a fresh start? When we do New Year's resolutions, I think it's a great time to recommit ourselves to the Lord. That's what they're doing here. It's their New Year's. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Anybody that could understand had gathered in the city square. So all who could understand, while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it, from daybreak until noon. So for six hours, they studied the Bible. Six hours they studied. Before the men, the women, and everybody who could understand, all the people listened attentively, which means they were really focused. For six hours, they were really focused to the book of law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform, which, by the way, is why we have a stage raised, so the Word of God is the central focus. He was on a high wooden platform for this purpose. Mattathai, Shema, Anah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padeah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. 
So the question, should we stand when we read the Word of God or not? I mean, obviously, we're not right now. It's okay to do that, but in other parts of the Bible, people sit and read the Word of God. It's about respect. You can do it either way, as long as you have the proper respect for the Word of God. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people while they were in their places. So Ezra's teaching, the Levites are going around group to group, explaining what it means to each of those groups. They read the book of the law, translating and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping. They were under conviction. They were weeping as they heard the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to your Lord, to our Lord. Do not grieve because your strength comes from rejoicing in the Lord. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions. They were sharing what they had and have great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So the rest of chapter 8, they have a celebration. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. In in chapter 9, we see the revival continue, more confession, more revival. And what we see here is the truth illustrated that once God transforms my life, I don't want to go back to the old way of living. And that's what happens. Their lives are changed. And they're forever changed. So there's revival that continues. And the truth in all of this, the central focus here is the Word of God. So the truth in all of this is that no Bible equals no revival. If you want revival, you have to be hungry for the Bible, for God's Word. And they are. So we're going to see two things this morning. We're going to evaluate the question I asked a few moments ago, how hungry are we, number one. And then when we do have a hunger... God transforms our lives. What do we do afterwards? What do we do with what he gives us? So number one, how hungry are we for the Bible? Do we have a Mosafar type hunger for the Bible? Do we want the word of God? Do we crave it in our lives? Four words that I'm going to give you to help you evaluate your Bible hunger this morning. The first is gathering. The second is attentive. The third is understanding. And the fourth is personal. First, do we desire to gather together and hear the Word of God taught? Do we really want to gather with God's people and hear the Word of God taught? Look at verse 1 again. The people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. First, they gather as one man. That tells us they're there for the same purpose. They are there to study the Word of God. They're not there to exchange recipes, to share vacation photos, to talk about the political landscape. They're there to study the Word of God and to worship God. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with those things that I just mentioned, but our main focus when we come together should be to worship God and to hear from Him. I mean, we we want instruction from God. We should desire hunger for the word of God as they did. How do we know this? Well, they asked Ezra the scribe to come and teach. And like I said, they stood there for six hours while they studied. I mean, you got to want something bad to stand outside six hours to do it. And that's exactly what they did. 
So how much desire do we really have in our busy, crazy, fast-paced lives? How much desire do we really have to gather with God's people and study the Word of God? We also need a willingness to pay attention to the Word. It's one thing to gather and for the Word of God to be preached. It's another to pay attention and to focus on what's being taught. Verse 3, while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of law. That word attentively, that's literally turning your ear to listen closely to something. So the picture here is sitting on the edge of your pew, leaning forward, listening, hanging on the word of God as it's read, as it's taught. That's how attentive, that's how focused they were on the Word of God. They were listening. We need to pay serious attention to the Word of God. You know, it's amazing Sunday mornings. I don't know how your house is, but my house tends to be a little crazy on Sunday mornings. Can anybody identify with that? You know, we get up at the alarm, we rush, we get ready, we get the kids together, we try to get them dressed as well as we can, put out a few fires with the kids along the way, we rush, we get in the car, we run to church, we get to church, we get out of the car, we get the kids to Sunday school, we go to Sunday school ourselves, we get in here in the worship service, we sit down, it's time to worship, we worship, it's time to study the Word of God, and then you open up your phone and you play solitaire or you surf on the internet or something like that, right? So if you're doing that right now, I'm not picking on you. But we do things like that. We, we daydream or we, we, we just phase out. It's, it's easy to do. You've had a long week, you're tired, but you don't focus. So my question is, why go through all of that to get ready and get here and then get here and tune out and not pay attention? You know, Johnny Hunt... A few years ago, several years ago, I was at a conference and he talked about a lady who sent him a letter. Pastors, we love those letters, right? <laughs> sent him a letter that pointed out five things wrong with his sermon. You know what he did? He sent her a letter back and thanked her because no one had ever been able to point out five things from his sermon before. <laughs> she was paying attention, at least, and he was thankful for that. How, how much do we focus on the Word of God and listen? It's not about the preacher. It's not about me. It's about the necessity of having the Word of God in our lives. We need God's Word. The thing that we need next is a desire to understand God's Word. We listen. Now we've got it. We're hearing it. We need to understand it. And sometimes it takes a little longer to understand. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Levites explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. So here's the picture. You've got Ezra teaching as I am, but then out in the, in the audience, in the square, you've got small groups divided up all over. This is where we get our idea for small groups. Here at Wall Highway, we call them connection groups. We've got Bible studies outside of this gathering for all age groups, for different seasons of life, and it's important that you be plugged into one of those groups. Here, this is important. We study the Word of God together, but in those smaller groups, you connect with people and you can discuss the Word of God. You can dig deeper together as a group. You've got more time to do that than you do in this large setting. And you can share your life with people. It's so very important that we are in small groups. They read the book of the law, verse 8, translating and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Now, what's happening here? Well, translating and giving meaning... Uh, there are several possibilities. I mean, Ezra could just be speaking clearly like I try to do, uh, or it, there's another possibility. Dr. Thomas Constable gives 
gives pretty neat insight into this. He, you, we need to realize that a lot of the people that, you remember, they were in exile for 70 years, right? So a lot of the people that came back to Jerusalem probably didn't speak Hebrew. So they couldn't teach their kids Hebrew. Ezra's reading in Hebrew, and so what's probably happening here is that the, the rest of the Levites are going to these small groups and translating what he's saying from Hebrew into the language that they speak or that they're familiar with. And again, small groups. And also a reason why we need different translations of the Bible. Not because God's word changes, but human language changes. I mean, words take on different meanings. So we have different translations. Why? So that we can better understand the meaning of the word of God, which is what they were doing. How do we understand it? First, we need to read it every day. Every day, day by day, we should read it. And as you read it and as you pray, God, give me wisdom, show me, teach me your word. He's going to show you things. Now, you're not going to understand everything there is to understand about the Bible, but that's okay. I mean, as far as that goes, Mark Twain used to say, as far as the things you don't understand, don't worry about the things you don't understand. Tackle the things that you do. There's plenty in here that we do understand that will keep us busy. There are some things that we're not going to understand, and there are things that we won't understand now but will later. And one day it'll all make sense when we see Jesus face to face. But focus on the things that we do. Spend time every day. We've got to be able to do that. We've got to be willing to do that. Second, they stood in their places. Again, small groups. If you're not a member of a small group, listen, you're not getting everything that you should from your spiritual walk with Christ because you've got to have that connection. You can come in here every Sunday and just blend in and never feel like you're a part of this church. You need to be a part of a connection group here at Wall Highway. Desperately, we need those groups, to study the Word of God and to share our lives with others. Third, in verse 4, Ezra's preaching. And again, hey, listen, this is not about uh, me. It's, it's not about you know, me promoting preaching this morning. It's not about the preacher. I'm a Bible-based preacher. I'm an expository preacher, which means it's text-driven. I look at what the text said then and what it meant then, and I'm going to communicate how that, what the meaning is now. It's the same meaning, different time. I'm going to look at how they applied it then, and then we're going to look at how it applies today. It may apply a little differently. The truth is the same, never changes, but the application differs. So we look at what it says then and what it says now. And the reason this is so very important is because I want to share the Word of God to you. I want to teach you what it says, what it means, so that we can grow and be transformed into the image of Christ as we apply it to our lives. We have to know it, and we have to understand it, and we have to be willing to sit and study it together. The Word of God, listen, believe me when I tell you I understand the truth, that it's not the preaching that makes the Word powerful, it's the Word that makes the preaching powerful. Uh, it's a humbling task that, that any of us who are Bible teachers have been called to. The Word of God stands on its own. Fourth, we need a willingness to personalize the Word of God. Do I really know it's for me? Do I really understand? Verse 8 says it was the law of God, which means they believed it was the word of God. There was no question about whether or not it was God's word. They believed that this was actually God's word. And when you think about this, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years on three different continents in three different languages. 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,600 years, three different languages, three different continents. 
And the reason that it is one continuous, unified message with the purpose of introducing Jesus to the world, and the reason that it does not contradict itself doctrinally, theologically, morally, scientifically, through archaeology, the reason it doesn't contradict itself, and the reason it speaks with one voice is because its author is divine. It is God's Word from God to man. We gotta recognize, we've got to accept it as God's Word. The Bible says this about itself. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, this is why we constantly thank God because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, listen to this, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. We believe it's God's Word, but we understand that it's God's Word to us. It is for us. Verse 12 of chapter 8, Nehemiah. Then all the people began to eat, drinks, and portions, have great celebration. Why? Because they had understood the words that were explained to them. God's message to them. God's word is for you and me. It's personal. I want to show you a picture of a very, very old letter. It is in English. It's hard to read. And even if you were to see it up closely, it would be hard to read. But it's from 1477. That is as far as we know, the oldest Valentine in existence. It's a love letter. A lady by the name of Mary or Marjorie Brew wrote a love letter to her fiancé, John Patson, and it is now in the British Library, and it's considered to be the oldest love letter in existence. 1477, the oldest love letter in existence. I disagree. The oldest love letter in existence is God's Word. This just the story from, from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man. Let's just walk through it. God creates the world. He creates man. Genesis 3, what does man do? Man sins. And for, we're forever under sin after that. Genesis 4 through Revelation, the end of Revelation, is God's love story to you. It is Jesus' love letter to you saying, I want you back. And not only that, I'm providing a way for you to come back to me. It's the oldest love letter because it was written from eternity past, but it's not a museum relic. It's new, it's fresh, it's alive, and it applies to today. You can use it for your life. It's for you. It's for me. And God wants to use it to transform our lives. That's why Billy Graham said the Bible is God's love letter to us, telling us not only that he loves us, but it's showing us what he did to demonstrate his love. That's Jesus dying on the cross. The Bible is God's love letter because it tells us, he says, how we should live because God knows what's best for us and wants to experience, wants us to experience his best, what's best for us. We have the privilege, not in a locked up bathroom, one page at a time, but every day individually and every week corporately coming together and feeding on the word of God. What a privilege to have God's word to us. Dr. Danny Aiken said this. He said, one cannot love the God of the book without loving the book of the God. So do you hunger for the word of God? Do you love God's word? Second, once we've evaluated our hunger, we need to ask, how do we live in response to the book of God, to his word? More than hearing, it's about doing. Once we know, we have a responsibility to act. We have to act on what we know. We see that in verses 1 through 12, we see when we hunger for God's word, we will move from information to application. You know, knowledge brings responsibility. If you don't use that knowledge, you're sinning. 
And so that's why, and every, every time I teach, I include application because I don't want to be responsible, responsible for encouraging your sin. I want to help you know how to use it in your life. And so once we know, we've got a responsibility to act. When we move, when we know, we move from hunger. When we hunger, we move from knowledge to application. We see all kinds of responses in our verses today. Let's just quickly walk through a few responses together. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So first we see agreement. Amen, that's what that means. It's true. We agree that this is true. And then in unity, what did they do? They worshiped. They worshiped in agreement with their faces bowed to the ground. And then in verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. They were under conviction. So we see weeping. And that's natural. When you're convicted by the word of God and you realize you're in sin, the natural response is to weep. But then they're told, okay, don't stay there. There's a time to weep, but then you need to stop weeping and rejoice because the Word of God can not only convict you, it can also cleanse you. You can be cleansed from your sins. Verse 10, we see, Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our God. Do not grieve, because your strength comes from rejoicing in the Lord. So they move from weeping to joy and strength, because there's encouragement and equipping for life that we get from the Word of God. The Word of God is alive, it's active, it works in us, and then it works through us. So there's reason to rejoice. Then in verse 11, the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, today is holy, but do not grieve. So we see in verse both 10 and 11, we see this repeated. There is, there's an amazement at the holiness of God. I mean, are, are we, are, when we come into this place, now we should rejoice, we should celebrate. Different emotions are appropriate when we're worshiping the Lord. I'm not saying we should come in here and be somber. No, absolutely not. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. But they're also in awe of a holy God. And they're in, they're, they're, they have amazement at the holiness of God and that holy God would speak to me and, and, and want to transform my life, to rebuild my heart. So there's amazement at the holiness of God's word. And then in verse 12, all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have great celebration. This is the biblical basis for our covered dish luncheons, okay? Because, because they understood the words that were explained to them. There's a response to the word of God. They heard and they understood, so we see application here. We, we, once we have a hunger, we pay attention, we're attentive, we hear it, we understand it, then there's a responsibility to act on it. We have to act on the word of God. And the word of God is not tips for a better life. It's not a tips for a better you. It is the Word of God, and when we read it, and we understand it, and we see the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ, and Him going to the cross, and dying, and, and, and we believe that He is Lord and Savior, and He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the gra grave, and when we trust in Him as the way, the truth, and the life, and we receive salvation, we are believing in the living Word, Jesus Christ. We believe in God's Word, and then we trust in the living Word. Those two things cannot be separated. People try to all the time. Okay, I like the Bible, but not Jesus. Uh, that's too much. Or, or, hey, Jesus is okay, but I just I don't care anything for the Bible. And in love, I have no idea what those people are talking about. Because you cannot separate the two. Jesus is the living Word. 
Where do we get this? Well, I mean, look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. In verse 14 of the same chapter, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observe His glory, the glory as the one and only, the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word, of course, is Jesus. He is the Word. And if that's not enough, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said this about himself. He said, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. You can't separate them. And you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You cannot have salvation unless you believe in the word of God and the living word, Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. And when we know him and we trust him as Savior, we are trusting in him as the living word. Once we respond with, to God's word with acceptance, we listen, we understand, we accept it, we're applying it, we're accepting Jesus as Savior, the last thing that we realize we want to do is that we don't want to keep that to ourselves. We want to share it with other people. And that's what we have to do. And applying, we're applying it to our lives personally, but also part of application is sharing what we've learned with others. We have a responsibility to share Look at verse 10. He said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and then do what? Send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve because your strength comes from rejoicing in the Lord. So once God's word penetrated their heart, what's the first thing they wanted to do? They wanted to share what they had with other people. They wanted to be generous. God gave them, God was generous to them, rebuilding their hearts. Now they want to be generous to others. But then look at verse 1, and this is also repeated in verse 3. All the people are gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They ask Ezra to teach them. Now the question is this, why aren't they in the temple? Why, why didn't they gather in the temple? They were in the city square. The word of God was on the streets. Now they had the word of God in the temple, but there's, there's intent here. The Word of God doesn't need to just stay in here. We've got to take it to the streets. And that's what they're doing. They're sharing it. They're, they're taking what they've learned, and they're, they're teaching it out in public for everybody. And it says, anybody that can understand. Once we have the Word of God in our lives, once it changes us, we want to share that. And what we find is what we do, our missiology, what we do is based on what we believe, our theology. And so what we believe about the Word of God drives what we do with our lives. If I believe in the sinfulness of man and that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that he saves man and that he has transformed my life, then that's going to affect how I live. If I believe God is God and he is who he says he is and he has a plan for my life and he tells me what to do with my life, and if I believe that truly, it's going to affect how I live, isn't it? My missiology is based on my theology. If you want to know what people believe, look at how they live. And that tells you what they believe. Because what we do with the Word of God has tremendous impact on our lives. Now, I'm going to illustrate that for you this morning. We've been kind of going with the theme of light for the past several weeks. You know, the light of Christ, He puts His light in us when He changes our hearts. And He transforms our lives. And so this today represents that. But we're also going to say this is... Of course, there's salvation that never goes out. That light never goes out. But the light of Christ also involves what we do, doesn't it? It involves how we live. It involves uh, how we interact with other people, what we, whether or not we share what we have with them, our day-to-day -day lives. So this represents what we do from day to day and how effective we are at what we do. 
We're going to say that this block, and yes, it's as heavy as it looks, represents the Word of God because the Word of God is a solid foundation, right? The Word of God is our foundation. And so when we build our lives on the Word of God, it affects what we do and the consistency. Now, one more thing. Borrowed my wife's hair dryer this morning. If we've built our lives on the Word of God, this represents what it is, the wind, but the winds of life, all that life brings, right? I mean, there's trials, tribulations, there's challenges, there are things that test our faith, there's sickness, there's health, there's ups, downs, mountaintops, valleys, all of these things. But when the winds of life come and our, and our life is built on the word of God, nothing. We're protected because what we believe and what we've built our lives on affects how we live. Now, Let me show you what some people choose to do with the Word of God. We have to accept all of it, every bit of it, even the parts we don't understand. Because when you start cutting the corners, which this bottle represents, edges are rounded, when you start cutting the corners, that's when you get into trouble. We talked about this, the buffet Christianity, right? I go through the Bible, I pick out what I like, and I leave what I don't, which is fine for a buffet, but not so much for studying the Word of God. Because when you do that, when you don't take all of it and submit to all of it, your life is compromised. And what happens when the winds of life blow? There's no protection. Your your work for the Lord. You still got salvation, don't get me wrong, but your work for the Lord is snuffed out completely. So what we believe about the Bible affects what we do in our lives from day to day. So are you hungry for the Word of God? I mean, has your life been transformed by the Word of God? And if you are hungry, you're spending time in the Word of God, God's teaching you through people, through your personal time, through your small group, your connection group, time in the Word, what are you doing with it once God's shown you His truth and changed your life? Because what we believe has direct impact on what we do. You know, if I were to sum up this message, children are on my heart today because I baptized my youngest daughter. If I were to sum up this message, here it is. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for giving us your living word. And I pray that we would have a desire to know your word and to trust your word. That we would have a hunger for your word. That we would spend time in it daily, that we would study it, that we would take it in, make it a part of who we are. We would allow you to do your work in us through the power of your word and that we would live according to what your word says, that we would take it and apply it to our daily lives. The greatest message in your word is the message of salvation, that you offer a way out of sin, that we are dead in sin, that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. But Jesus, because of your death on the cross and your resurrection, we can be saved and forgiven, restored from sin, back into a right relationship with you. And Father, I pray that if there's somebody here today who has not accepted that gift of salvation, that during this time of commitment they would come and allow me to share with them how to make the most important decision they will ever make, the decision to follow you. Father, for those of us who are saved, I pray that we would evaluate our hunger for your word and and what we're doing with it, how we're living according to your word, or whether we are or not living according to your word. There may be other decisions you're leading us to make, Father, church membership, baptism, whatever it is. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would respond accordingly.
For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?